This is the Context Podcast sponsored by Proofgeist. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. With every innovation that solves a problem in our platform, there come some drawbacks. The method is overkill or too slow, it's incredibly advanced, or it requires a lot of custom functions. Sometimes a solution raises a few new problems. In today's episode, my guest Cornwalker describes that exact phenomenon as he explored how to make our Proof EDU product better. Corn shares with us the origins and the evolution of Proof EDU. Along the way, he describes the solutions to problems they faced and the new quirks that showed up. Our discussion today involves the party model, module programming, table occurrence hopping, and PubSep. We went through a lot of topics. There's some great information in all of these. I'm glad to be able to talk to Corn in this episode. He's got a wealth of knowledge about FileMaker and truly seems to understand the platform deeply. So any unplanned question I proposed didn't phase him at all. Welcome, Corn Walker, to the Context Podcast. Good to have you here, finally. Uh, how's your morning here at the beginning of our week? Thanks, Jeremy. Um, it's actually pretty good. Just got back from a trip out to a vacation home for the weekend. It was a quick trip, but you know it's pretty relaxing and got me ready for the week. I uh, saw that you were working in your car on Friday <laughs> as your wife was driving, right? Yes. yes. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> Well, so you have a laptop. I have a small <laughs> laptop. Actually, I do all of my work on a 13-inch MacBook Pro. Whoa. So that's part of how I'm able to do it is by having the smaller laptop. And that just, you know, that came out of necessity when we were doing a lot of air travel. And, mm-hmm. you know, having that 15-inch or 17-inch or 16-inch or whatever, those laptops were just, you know, way too big to to do any productive work on an airplane. <laughs> And this was before, like having the iPad Pro or something like that. That was even better. Corn, why don't you? Uh, before we begin, it's again, it's good to have you on here. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Introduce yourself to our audience. So I'm Corn Walker. I'm a senior developer with Proofgeist, and I've been doing Claris FileMaker for I'm guessing now twenty plus years. I mean, it actually goes back before that. I realized at some point that I'd actually been using FileMaker a long time ago when I was working in the Denver Public Library. And I didn't know what the product was at the time. And then later when I was a school teacher, I was using a product called FileMaker 2. And back then it was um, in competition with um, ACT, which was a contact management tool. And so a lot of the, the branding and marketing for FileMaker was about how it was a better Rolodex than ACT was. And then um, I got back into FileMaker with version Three, when I started doing computer stuff, and I've been pretty much working with FileMaker ever since then. How long have you been with Proof? With well, the Proof Group and now Proofgeist. Um, with Proof Groups, pretty much since it started. When Ernest and Steve formed Proof, I was one of the first people that came on board, like literally a few weeks after, and then Mike joined on as well. Did you know Ernest before that? Yeah, yeah, we had all worked together at In Resonance. Um, okay. So I had started working with Ernest back in, gosh, I want to say 1999 when I was still a teacher. Um, in Resonance had a sort of summer FileMaker workshop for teachers um, where you would, it was kind of like an internship um, where you would learn how to code in FileMaker. Um, and it was a paid gig. 
And so that was the first time I had encountered Ernest and um, Kevin, who was the other owner of In Resonance at the time. And so we had done that. And I actually met Mike there as well. So both Mike and I had started with that first FileMaker um, boot shop. Or actually, I'm going to say that was in 2000, not 1999. But we had started with that first FileMaker internship. And then we went back to teaching in our schools. And then after that, we joined up with In Resonance. Very cool. And and just curious what your, um, what is your trajectory through FileMaker been? Like, you know, what do you remember learning? When did you remember learning it? The reason I ask is because you're, you, you, you've worked in FileMaker for 20 odd years, but, and you're really pushing FileMaker as we'll get into in this to do more than what it's meant to do. I think mm-hmm. Ernest mentioned that in the podcast episode I had with him about his searching that he had done at DevCon. But anyway, just curious what your trajectory was. When did you decide you wanted to push FileMaker <laughs> past what it could do? Um, pretty much always. Okay. Um, you know, the, the first time I really sort of learned FileMaker professionally, I was actually doing a networking job. We were setting up a Novell network for a publisher and there was a guy there who had this product for the sales team that was built entirely in FileMaker. And it was in FileMaker 3. And I was just like, wow, FileMaker can do that? And so he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you should get yourself a copy, get the developer edition, because then you can make royalty-free um, copies of your apps. And I was like, great. And it was pretty expensive at the time. I think it was about $1,500. But you know, that, that turned out to be sort of the start of it. I started, you know, really working with FileMaker. And then my first sort of large gig, because um, I had a couple of small gigs, you know, like making a little invoicing system or something like that here and there. My first large gig was with a hotel reservations company. <laughs> and they had this incredibly large and complicated system it involved a mainframe somewhere in Atlanta. There was a terminal session that used a screen scraper to get the data off of there. And then they had an application that was written. I think it was a native Mac application that would get the reservation data and display it to the reservation agents. And what the manager of the center said is like, you know, look, this software, it's not great. It's kind of buggy. doesn't work all that well could you do something better? And he said, I went down to the computer store and the guy gave me this and he held up a box copy of FileMaker Pro 4.1. And I said, oh, sure, let's see what we can do. And so that very first system involved like, you know, 4.1 was, I believe, the first version that had SQL support. So um, I was able to make ODBC connection to the Mac software that was connected to, it was a Oracle personal edition that was running on each reservation agent's desktop that was being fed by this screen scraper. And it was like this horribly complex project. Um, And the intent of it was to do two things. One was to speed up making reservations. And the second was to give the manager better data reporting because there was absolutely no reporting in the other system. So I was really pushing what FileMaker could do then. And one of the things I was pushing was just the record counts. Because I, you know, when I had to do my first data migration, which, you know, wasn't a thing back then. It was shut the system down and and import, you know. There were, I think, 138 million records in the system, and it was about 1.7 gigabytes of data. 
And so that system, I mean, it was just unmanageable. You know, it took all night. And while the reservation center is down, all of those reservations are going to like another call center. So they're not getting paid anything during that time. So I started looking into ways that I could sort of, how can I actually manage FileMaker to manage the, like, this, these really large projects, but do it in a way that allows me to actually update the system because that was not going to be tenable again. You know, he, the, the manager was pretty clear. They can't go offline for eight hours to do a data import <laughs> um, because that's them losing revenue for every call that they don't take. And then ever since then, it's been pretty much, you know, let's see what the tool can do. And, you know, beyond what the box says it can do, let's, yeah. can it do more? It's an interesting mindset to look at that and and go, what what more can I do with this? You know, I'm given execute SQL, for example, or I'm giving given execute data API script step. What more can I do with it? Not I, I have found that um, quite prevalent in our community. People like a virtual list idea. That's not mm-hmm. written anywhere in the documentation, right. but lots of people figured it out. Bruce Robertson is one that has kind of been um credited with it, but I know it's been bandied about for such a long time. It's it's an interesting connection in people's brains to be able to take separate things like a global variable, you know, calculated fields, a list view, and combine it together into a virtual list idea. Right. So. There's a fine line that is tricky to walk because, you know, the types of things that we're doing is like you can rely on documented features. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty safe. But sometimes the the it's not that the feature's undocumented. It's just that there are aspects of the feature that aren't in the documentation. And you wonder, like, mm, is this going to change at some point? You know, <laughs> because yeah, they haven't yeah. said explicitly that it can do this. But then you poke around and you're like, oh, yeah, it kind of works this way. And it seems to be consistent. And then you just hope that, you know, they don't do a behavior change that kind of throws all of that work out. But, you know, I've <laughs> <laughs> only run into that, you know, probably once where they changed the behavior of the product and, you know, in terms of the, the way that the feature worked. We're going to, in our topic today, we're going to get into one ways that you, one way that you and Ernest, I think together have pushed FileMaker to do better as far as data storage is concerned. Mm-hmm. What is the most um, awesome thing you've done when you've pushed FileMaker? What are you most proud of? Oh gosh, I might be the wrong person to answer that because I don't actually feel proud of anything. Okay. Um, Interesting. And, you know, that's just my general orientation. Um, Because one of the things that I try to recognize is that I haven't done any of this by myself. You know, everything that I'm doing is, it's not like, oh, I've, you know, gone into a white room, came up with some fancy method or something like that, and then came back and presented it to the world. I'm always building on the work of others. Yeah. And so I see my stuff as being an incremental addition to work that other people have done. So I can never feel like, oh, I'm proud of this because I'm, I can't even take credit for the whole thing. You know, okay. 98% of it is somebody else's work or yeah. a lot of other people's work. And then I've just added, you know, my own little contribution to it. Okay, that's fair. And I, I agree with that. I think the community has been good about building upon what each person before has done. I love working with the JavaScript. I know I'm not the first person to to explore this idea. I've pushed it a lot as well, but... Yeah, I mean, there's people that have been advocating for this for 20 years or 15 years or so, whenever since 8.5 anyway, when the web viewer came out. So, right. Um, but that's good that we can we can build off of each other and and continue to push the platform. You know, you know and and there are a lot of people who are just f- perfectly fine working within the documented structure of FileMaker, right? Um, right. And I think 
you know, as we describe um, proof EDU and the, the core module here, you probably say that there's a lot that's in there that's just documented normal FileMaker. Um, but pushing FileMaker is, is also fun to do. I, I'm interested in how we develop that idea. Is it just playing with FileMaker until we get something to work? Is it problem-based? Is it understanding the concept behind something and then trying to find a little tweak to that? Right. I don't know. You know, a, a lot of times um, for me personally, it's really figuring out how a feature works. Um, you know, the documentation has been getting better and better, but, you know, back when I first started doing this as my full-time job, um, the documentation just really wasn't there. Yep. You know, it would describe a feature and it would kind of say what it does, but there was a lot of ambiguity there. And so what I saw as interesting to me was sort of poking at the box, like how do I figure out how this thing actually works? For mm -hmm. example, I remember back in, I think it was FileMaker 5 or 5.5, there's a lot of question in the community about how word breaks work in FileMaker. And you looked at the documentation and it just said a word break character. Mm -hmm. And it didn't list what those were, and it didn't list, you know, what are the exceptions. Um, and so it's really just, you know, you're, you're poking there and you're saying, oh, well, what happens when the two things I'm breaking on one side is a time and the other side is, is a word? You know, what, what does a word break behave like there? You know, if there's a, an alphanumeric or if it's just alpha or if it's just numeric, there's a hyphen. Is that a word break or not a word break? You know, and just sort of figuring out all of those little nuances to how the feature works, because some programmer at Claris designed that feature, but somehow all of those questions that they had to answer themselves didn't actually make it into the documentation. Yeah. And so I always found it as sort of a, a fun challenge to figure out like, how did they actually do this? What, what did they do? What were they trying for? Um, there's probably some logic there. You know, most programmers aren't just haphazardly creating things. So figuring out what that logic is so I can have a better sense of what that feature does. Yeah. And, and people can take your explorations, your experiments that you've, you've posted somewhere or you've spoken about and, and continue to run with it, use it and then continue to run with it. So um, how, how do word breaks work? What if there's a comma and a <laughs> period right next to each other? Oh. Is that is that two words there? You know, is that you know, two breaks? It's funny because it's changed, um, you know, because oh. now we have all these indexing options. You've got Unicode, et cetera. It's, you know, it is no longer as simple as it was when everything was just Latin-based <laughs> character set back in FileMaker 5. So. Well, let's uh, veer into something else that you have really pushed with FileMaker. It's, it's, it centers around data storage or maybe not data storage, maybe data retrieval. Is that the right one? You'll have okay. to help me clarify. Maybe those are the same thing or two, two sides of the same coin. But a couple months ago now, you uh, did a mind meld here. Here at Proofgeist, we have a, a mind meld session each Monday. And um, usually that's a time. It, I think it started. I don't know. Did you do this at Proof Group before? Did you do something no, like we, this? we really group? didn't. Um, okay. You know, at, at Proof... You know, we were a smaller team than we are now yeah. with Proof Guys, and the mind melds really came about for helping everybody get accustomed to the other team. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I really, I really liked that idea. I, I think it was was it Dave and Mike who came up with those, Dave so, Graham yeah. and Mike Lee. Yeah, yeah. I really liked that idea of sort of introducing each other, introducing the work that we've respectively been doing, and and getting each other accustomed to those types of things how we do things and each other, as you said. Yeah, so, yeah. so 
one of the mind melds you presented a lot of detail um, about, as far as I understand, about proof edu mm-hmm. and about a particular module in that uh, in called core CRM. Correct. Is that correct? Yes. So let's start at the top. Can you give us um, a, a brief definition or description of uh, what proof edu is? Sure. Um, so proof edu is a suite of products that we have for the education space. We primarily have targeted um, independent schools and universities, and there were a couple of reasons for that. One of the things that we found was that it was sometimes frustrating um, trying to work with public schools, just in terms of the length of time that the project would take just for the sales process. And, you know, we occasionally would work with public schools, but a lot of times there were a lot of constraints there and, and they didn't have the resources to make us really helpful to them, or they didn't have the budget, they didn't have, you know... I recall, I think Mike had gone out and done a training once and they didn't have computers, you know, so you have a room full of teachers and they have to, you know, call an employee to plug in all of the computers and get accounts. And, you know, and, and so half your day is, is just gone with that. And our, our experience, and we all have come out of the independent school world um, primarily in, at Proof. And so our experience is that with independent schools, they typically have, there was somebody there who got you everything that you needed to be able to do a successful training. Mm -hmm. And so our products are really aimed at that market and independent schools are like colleges. They have a lot of the same needs and they have a lot of the same systems. They're just at a smaller scale. So we have systems looking at the administrative work of the school. So that looks at the admissions process, um, the enrollment process, um, everything that the registrar's office is doing, registering students for classes, looking at assessment data for students and producing report cards and transcripts. And then also one of the features of independent schools is raising money. And so we had a product that was targeted towards that goal of managing your alumni base and your constituents who are actually going to provide the funding for the continuation of the school. So that's where Proof EDU came in is is really trying to address all of those parts of the administrative side of the school. Uh, okay, that's that's great. I my first database was building a, a student information system from scratch and mm-hmm. uh, completely bit off more than I could chew. Uh, yeah. I had lots of modules that weren't really modules, and you know I didn't design it the right way. But right. hey, it, it got the job done. You know, you know? so it, it does, really- and you know that's a lot of you know it, it's actually more common than you would imagine a lot of people i've run into a number of people who have used filemaker and they've said oh yeah you know i i was creating a student information system for my school <laughs> and i was yeah. like you know how did that go because you know from my experience it takes a lot of work and it actually takes a team to pull it off i was doing that full-time pretty much while i was also teaching full-time Ex- exactly yeah there were one year i did i did both of those part-time so Four hours was supposed to be database. Four hours was supposed to be teaching. I would get up at 3 a.m. to do support (laughs) tickets and then try to put together a lesson plan and get get ready to go. And uh, it was pretty awful. That sounds like my last year of teaching. I was supposed to be um, 60% teaching and 40% um, (laughs) you know, computer networks and database support. And it ended up being 80% teaching and 100% computer. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and I had a, um, an infant at home as well at the time who was, you know, two months old. And <laughs> so that, that's actually why I ended up joining up with um, In Resonance 
was because okay. it's like, you know, I can't actually do 180% with an infant. <laughs> so did, did Proof EDU start clear back then? Yeah. Um, so in Resonance, um, Ernest and Kevin were both working at the Loomis Chafee School in Connecticut. And they had split off to actually, Kevin, I believe, had started with um, FileMaker templates that he was sharing with other schools. And then okay. eventually, I believe, um, you'll have to ask Ernest this, um, you know, they saw it as a potential business model that they could actually develop these further into systems that they could sell to schools. And so he, so Kevin and Ernest had started that. And I think Mike and I were like employees number six and seven um, of in resonance. And, re- you know, I, we were within resonance for, I think about six years six or seven years um, before we decided to go separate ways and Ernest and Steve decided to create Proof while Kevin continued on with the in-resonance business. Proof EDU grew, you said it started then, started from some templates and I'd love to hear that. I mean, mean, the software itself didn't. A lot of the concepts did. Okay. Um, But when we started Proof, we started with nothing in terms of we didn't bring over any of the software from in-resonance. We basically started, and this was around the same time that FileMaker 7, 8 transition was was happening. So we really saw this as a way to reimagine the way that the software was built, particularly because we had a new, completely different version of FileMaker. Yep. Um, it had the same design surface as FileMaker 6 did, but a completely different data and relational model and windowing model. And all of that being so different, we decided to just from the ground up rebuild everything. And so it's it's grown. I mean, so that was 20 plus years ago. Uh, Proof EDU has grown. How many different uh, modules, how many does this thing have now? Oh, gosh, I, I don't even know. I, I can't keep track. Because um, there's a number of modules. There are modules that we've created specifically for some schools um, okay. that we haven't necessarily sold to other schools. For example, we have a scheduling module that takes all of the course requests from the students and schedules those requests. Um, and, you know, that module is being used by one school. We've got modules that are used by like two or three schools. And so the core mm-hmm. modules there, I think there are six core modules to it. And then there are a number of other modules out there that are being variously used at, at different schools. So your mind meld was about um, the core section of Proof EDU. Mm-hmm. In previous mind melds, Mike and others have kind of caught us up to speed about what it looks like and what kind of data it manages, the whole thing. But you spe- specifically focused on the core section. You didn't really show us any user interfaces because your focus was really on the data. What is the core section of Proof EDU? So core, um, there's a little bit of history to how core happened. Um, you know, a lot of people have done CRM systems before. And core is not that, you know, we don't have like invoices and things like that. So we call it CRM, but it's not the traditional business CRM that people are thinking about. It's really about the core data that's shared across all those modules. Okay. And so one of the things that where the in-resonance systems were designed and how we actually changed that design when we were thinking about FileMaker 7's new architecture was in-resonance system had, I think... It's sort of the intuitive, traditional way that most people have done things. So they create their student information system. They have a student's table. And that student Mm -hmm. has a first name and a last name and a phone number and an email address and all of that stuff. And then they have a faculty table. 
and that faculty has a first name and a last name and a phone number and an email address. And then they have a parents table. And those parents have a first name and a last name and a phone number and an email address. And then the way that you manage that is you do imports and exports. So if a student is now an alumni and you want to move them into the alumni system, well, you just export them from students and import them into alumni. And now an alumni has a first name and a last name and a phone number and an email address. And because those are, because those are yeah. entities. As I understand data modeling, right. that is the first thing we learn is what an entity is. It's right. a noun, right? Yep. And so students, alumni, parents, emails, they sound different. So right. they sound like they should belong in different tables, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's basically how um, the in-resonance systems were designed. And one of the things that we ran into is that what happens when there's change to that data? Okay. And so often you will have a parent who has an existing kid at the school, has a prospective kid who's applying to the school, and is also an alumni. And that parent gives you a phone number change or an email address change. And the way that a lot of schools would handle that in their systems and the way that we handled it in the in-residence systems was, well, you send out an email out to all of the departments and say, hey, by the way, Sally Smith has updated her phone number. Here it is. Make sure to update your system. Increasingly, schools were not on board with that model. And there was this whole effort made. It was a huge effort called the School Interoperability Framework, SIF. And the idea was to create this XML data interchange standard and have this automated broker. So whenever you made an update to one system, it could make those updates in other systems. And it was big and unwieldy and not many people adopted it. And we certainly didn't adopt it at InResonance. Is um, this, was this a general thing or was... This like, was a general thing that was okay. in the education industry. So okay. all of the education software vendors were supposedly going to sign on to this thing to create um, a data interchange platform to allow their products to interoperate with other products, whether it's from themselves or another vendor in different offices and things. One of the things that I recognize is I said, you know, well, that's great if, you know, you have one company providing your admission software and you have another company providing your student information system. Well, of course, you're going to need some sort of interoperability framework to make those systems talk to each other. But it seemed to me to be inexcusable if both products came from the same vendor <laughs> and they didn't talk natively, uh, you know, out of the box, so to speak. Okay. So I said, you know, well, why don't they talk to each other? Why is there this whole thing This of I've got to import and export and update in three different places? And, I've, you know, mm -hmm. that's a lot of work for your administrative yeah. staff to have to do when really it's a failure of the system design. Mm -hmm. And so what we looked at was abstracting out. How do we abstract out all of the common data, such as the email addresses, the names that sometimes are changed? You know, maybe there's a misspelling on the admissions form and you need to correct that. A lot of that data is changing and we don't want to have to send emails out to all the departments to say, oh, by the way, make sure you update your system. If that system is from us, we want that that change to be reflected immediately. So let me let me make sure I understand this. Proof EDU is a bunch of different modules and they 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 go to different part departments in the school. Yes. Okay. Yep. So like there might be a, a, an administrative one, there's probably um I don't know, a lunch one or you know, I'm just making up different departments. There might be What's a dean's thing? office one for example dean's where they're office. tracking okay. attendance and discipline. And before before you this core thing came up, they each had their own data tables. 
Right. They had their student, Jeremy Brown, in them. Correct. And that email would be their prompt to update their system. Right. So okay. if, if for some reason you, you know, you got a communication back from the school, maybe it was your class schedule. And you said, huh, they spelled my name with an E. That's interesting. And then you communicate it to the school. Well, you know, maybe you call the admissions office. That's the place that you normally had your first contact with the school. So maybe that's the person you're comfortable with. You say, oh, oh, by the way, um, my name doesn't have an E in it. Can you just drop that off? And they say, oh, sure, sure. And they make that change in their system. You get your report card and there's that E still there. And you're like, wait, I'm pretty sure I called them and asked them to correct that spelling. And the reason for that is because, well, sure, the admissions office corrected it in their system, but the registrar office didn't get the memo or missed it or or whatever. Yep. And so for us, we're like, well, that happens when you have systems from different vendors, but that yep. should never happen with systems from the same vendor. And so that's where we looked at doing the core module. It's okay. You, you, I like your clarification there. From different vendors, it might be the the case you you have to update each one of them. Yes. But the same vendor and ProofEDU comes from the same vendor, all of those different modules. So your assumption was that our modules should be able to talk to each other. Yes. You could have just done, say, you could have just transferred the data from one to the other, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a way to talk to each that other? Is. And that was an early way that um, we've tried with, you know, and what ends up happening is you have sort of this battle between different departments over whose update is the correct update. And they're each insistent about, you know, their update being the right one. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so why is that even a thing? You know, that's not a, uh, that's not a goal of our system is to put pit departments against each other over their <laughs> data management. <laughs> so we're trying to solve the data management problem for them, not create new management tasks or new management challenges. Okay. So core was really that effort. It's like, how do we unify this data across the entire school so that every department is looking at the most correct as, as far as it can be? I mean, you, you're still going to have a problem, you know, where, you know, maybe the admissions office and the academic office are dueling over what's the correct email address. We can't solve that problem if they're each updating it, but uh-huh. we can solve the problem of once it's been updated, that update is available everywhere. It's it's funny because this this sounds commonplace that you would have one data store for every different module, but I I'm using my limited experience. I don't I didn't I didn't ever build separate modules. They were still all of the same file. Right. So I mean that and that's a strength of FileMaker, and that's one of the biggest reasons why you would want to have a single file for everybody that's that they're all connected to via you know a host um but you didn't build proof edu for to be a a single file you had modules because some schools may want modules a b and g and other schools may want a whole different set right Right. yeah that's the whole reason there's both a business and a technical case for having separate modules okay Um, the business case is really that yeah a school might want to buy our admission system and say, no, we're, we're perfectly happy with our student information system, but we need a really good admission system. And you know, we've heard you guys have the best. And so that might be a case where we'll sell them just admissions. Or it might be the case, you know, the other way where we want your student information system. We really like the flexibility. We have a really challenging schedule that we run here that a lot of other systems can't do out of the box. Um, but we're all set with our admission system. Um, we're part uh-huh. of a consortium where, you know, there's 20 schools that have all bought this one single admission system. but 
we really need your student information system. And so being able to deliver those independently from each other made sense from a business perspective. And then from a technicals perspective, you know, especially thinking back before we had things like the migration tool, if we wanted to update a system, um, we wanted to improve the academics module, then that meant that we had to improve everything or we had to deliver everything if it was all in like a single file. So mm-hmm. having these separate files, having one that's specifically about scheduling meant that we could deliver scheduling improvements without having to worry about, well, is, are the student registration improvements you know, ready to go? Are the assessment improvements ready to go? Is the admissions improvements, are those ready to go? You know, Coordinating all of those different updates to get to a single deliverable build would have been really challenging because we'd have to get you know, five different development projects all on the same release schedule. Mm-hmm. And having separate modules allowed us to have different release schedules for each thing. That makes perfect sense. I and I feel like that's a, a way that people go. I you know, there there's always a, a a discussion about this idea throughout the community. It pops up in the forums every once in a while. Um I don't think you've never said it's an either or. I don't know. Do you you work on single file applications, do you? Do you oh, ever occasionally? Yeah. I mean yeah. if you know, I, I try to take a somewhat ecumenical approach, which is, you know, whatever is called for. Yep. You know, I, I don't try to be doctrinaire about, well, we have to do it this way all the time, you know. Okay. So a lot of our EDU systems, for example, they have three files. There's a database file that has the data model in it. There's an API file that has all of the business logic. And then there's an application file that has all of the um, front end interface for the user to interact with. That made the most sense for these large modules that we were selling as a vertical product. That doesn't make sense for other things that we've created. So other things might just be a single file or it might be two files. It really depends on what the size of the project is, what the nature of it is, You know, how do we intend to update it. It certainly has helped with the data migration tool that now we can consider, oh, maybe we don't need to separate the database file out into its own thing because now it's so easy to just you know migrate that data forward so core held the data that was common for everybody like parents email addresses to me the assumption then is that there was some data that was individual to each of those areas yes and, and those are not part of the core modules correct, correct? right okay. so when we built core we um, started looking at different abstract data models and I ran across a book. Um, I think the author's name was David Lay. It was a data model patterning book. And he had mentioned the party model. And I said, huh, well, that's interesting. And he gave a quick example of it. But the book wasn't really focused on the party model at all. It was really focused on like, here are a bunch of different industries and here are different data models that you know work with those industries. And then I looked into the party model more and, and discovered Lynn Silverson's book. And that's where I really looked at, you know, those books, you know, they're pretty hefty, but they are incredibly valuable. And they really talk about different ways of data modeling and especially different implementations of a particular model. You know, he has these, this concept of different levels. Those different levels correspond to like how abstract do your tables get? Maybe creating fields in a single table that are just prefixed, or are you creating separate tables for them? Or are you creating maybe just a couple of tables and each table has a lot of different records and record types. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways of abstracting your data, but his focus was like, here's the logical model. Mm -hmm. And then the physical model 
is up to the implementer to figure out what works best for their system. And the physical model is when I actually get into it, what tables am I creating? What fields am I creating? What are they named? How are they related to each other? That's all the physical stuff. Logically, the model is the same. You know, so if I have a single table that has students, parents, faculty, and alumni all in that table, and then I have, you know, the student-specific fields are just prefixed with student, and the alumni-specific fields are just prefixed with alumni, and then all of the common fields maybe don't have a prefix or a prefix with core, that's one implementation. Another implementation might be, well, I have a person table, then I have a student table, a teacher table, an alumni table, and each of those are related to the person table. You know, they'll have a one-to-one relationship there. So whichever way I do it, the logic is the same. It's just an implementation detail about do I put them all in one table or do I break them out into two tables or five tables or 10 tables or 30 tables in my case. So that's a, you're talking about what you had mentioned in our mind meld was a concept, right? Yes. It's not, it's not an entity anymore. It's not a noun per people or students, parents, alumni, it's your initial, where the data is stored with, with all that stuff is, is actually just in a concept table called persons. Is that correct? So it's, it's a little bit, um, you know, a lot of people, when they get into data modeling, they start looking at entity relationship diagrams Uh and that's the logical model. So a student is still an entity. A teacher is still an entity. This is really about translating that relationship diagram into your tables in the system. And this is where a lot of people sort of get hung up because you look at the FileMaker relationships graph and you're like, oh, this is my entity relationship diagram. And I just go one-to-one. I have ERD here and you know, I make a table and stick that on the graph in FileMaker. One of the things you'll quickly run into is like, oh, I can't have any circuits. I can't have a closed loop in my graph. But on an entity relationship diagram, that's perfectly fine. I can have a loop back relationship to itself. I can have, you know, grand circuits. I have multiple circuits. Um, that was one of the things that really helped me was understanding that this difference between what is the logical model and how is that represented? Mm-hmm. You can represent that with an entity relationship diagram, or you can represent it with any number of different diagrams. And what does it actually look like when I actually create it in FileMaker? And the party model itself is an abstraction of some of those concepts. It's both an abstraction and a formalization. So the idea behind parties is really looking at the relationships between entities. And it's saying that, well, sure, you have parents and you have students and you have teachers in the case of our EDU software, but sometimes those can all be the same person. So you can have a student who graduated from the school, came back later to become a teacher at that school, and then later had a student who's now applying to that school. So now they're in three different roles, and the party model really formalized, well, how do you represent those? So the first thing you have is a party, and that party is the parent, or it's the student, or it's the teacher. And then you have the role they play. So the party is actually that person, Jeremy Brown, And then Jeremy Brown plays a role of teacher. Jeremy Brown plays a role of former student. Jeremy Brown plays a role of parent. And so breaking that up, then you can start to see, oh, right, I have the thing here that is Jeremy Brown. We call that a party. Um, Jeremy Brown is a person, which is a specific type of party. But we call that a party. And then that party plays different roles in the system. Okay. And that's the logical model. 
and then we can implement that physically as tables. So we can say, let's have a party table, and we have Jeremy Brown in there. Let's have a person table, and we'll have all of Jeremy Brown's you know, person-specific data. His name, his date of birth, his height, his weight, his favorite color, his ethnicities. Um, we can have all of that in there, his gender. Those are specific to a person. And, and I mention that because we can have other party types like organizations. So the school itself is a party. Or, you know, you might have a vendor that is a company. That's also a party. But a, a, a vendor doesn't have a date of birth. It doesn't have a weight. Um, so you're really segregating that data into the tables where it makes sense. And then each of those things plays a role in the system. So my company, Acme Surplus, might play the role of vendor in my system. Jeremy Brown plays the role of parent in my system. And he also happens to play the role of teacher in my system. And so that's really this abstracted concept is like looking at these as parties and roles. And then from there, what relationships do they have to other things? So if we were to plot this out using FileMaker tables, let me see if I get this. We would have a party. This isn't meant to be a party episode, but uh, (laughs) we're going to talk about it because it brings up the whole point of this, this episode. We have a party table. We that's where we store Jeremy Brown. Then we have a person table, and we also have a vendor table, because okay. a party may you said a party may be a vendor, so they're going to go that they're going to. Well, we have an organization table. Organization, yeah, yeah that's yes. what I meant. okay. Organization, and then they both go back to this the role table. If we're drawing a, a, a sort of a diagram, right? Because each. Each record in both of those separate tables is still a party, but they still they have roles. And so all the right. roles belong in that role table. Okay. Right. So we have a role table that has all of those roles. And then we might have role-specific tables. So something like a student table or a vendor table. Okay. Yeah, so a vendor table, I want to know, you know, what terms do they give? What's their mailing address? Mm-hmm. Um, who's my point of contact for that vendor? For a student table, I might want to know, well, what grade are they in? What's, what's their anticipated year of graduation? Who's their advisor? So there's going to be data that are specific to each of those roles. And so we might create a table for those. And that's pretty much the way that we designed the system. So we had this abstract model, which was the proof core model. Um, so that had all of the party information, had all of the roles that they played, had all of the relationships between those things had all of the contact methods for that. So that included emails, addresses, phone numbers, you know, your, your Skype address or your um, Facebook profile. Had all of that information was stored in, in our core module. And then any of our other education modules could talk to that core module. It could get data directly from that core module. Okay. So if I'm looking at a student and I want to know what that student's phone number is, well, I go from the student record over to their party record and then I look at their phone records and I can get a list of all of the phone numbers that they have there and see, oh, here's their work phone. Here's their cell phone. Here's their home phone. So in core so far, or what you had built before, each module would take the relationship graph from core. You would copy that structure in there or re, <laughs> re, you I know. would recreate it, right? You just had a thousand heads going like, what? We can copy the relationship graph? <laughs> Well, you could. We, we all wish. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you can copy. You can you can recreate the core um, relationship graph because that's how we work within FileMaker over there. So in yes. the in the dean's module, you would plop down the party table in there. Yeah. 
you would plop down the person table, the role right. table, the email right. table, the the phone number table, the the address table, the relationships tables, the you know, yeah, that's a, a lot of tables. tables. It's a lot of tables. Over. It's a lot of yeah. tables to copy over. Did you, did you ever forget any of them? It seems oh, like it was always, always, you know, and I mean, because core is so big. It's not just all of these things, but there's all yep. of these different relationships between systems. So we have another party type, which is households. Okay. And households have household members. And again, this is FileMaker. So unless you're using something like SQL to get at the data, you actually have to draw a path on the graph. And so when you're going from student, and I want to know what my mother's phone number is, I have to go from student to party to relationship because I have a relationship to the household. And then I go from the household to the household parent. And then from the parent to their person record and from their person record to their party record to their phone record. And so I've made this really long path through the graph to get from the student to the mother's phone number. So for the dean to look up that mother's phone number, their file has to jump through all those uh, paths, right? Or yes. run through all those paths. I have to represent all of that on the relationships graph to be able to get that information for that student. That Yeah, that, that sounds like it's someone would be someone's full-time job just to recreate <laughs> the, the, the model over in each of the, each of the modules, right? I had later had a thought, you know, when, when the FileMaker add-on modules came out, I was like, oh, oh this is great because I could just put all of Core's relationship graph in a file yeah. and just deliver that as an add-on module. It makes sense because the, the as, as far as I understand, the core doesn't change. That's why it's called core, right? You're right. not willy-nilly adding new fields or new tables. You're not adding new concepts to the core. Is that well, correct? We occasionally do. Occasionally. And that's, but not, and, and that's, that's why it's separate as well, uh -huh. um, okay. because whatever we do in core, um, we can deliver that update to core. You don't necessarily get the benefit from the additions, but they also don't do any harm. Okay. So we can update a core and say, oh, well, now we have the ability to track um, LinkedIn as a special thing. So we created a special mm -hmm. LinkedIn table. Oh. Well, sure. Um, or maybe we decide to add some other module, you know, or some other feature to core it just means that you have to go to all these different files to <laughs> add that, you know? So, you know, if you add like another couple of tables, yeah, you have to visit the graph to all these different files and add those in. So, okay. So I, I, I'm getting this idea better. I think the party model is starting to come in focus for mm -hmm. me as a developer. Um, I know at Geist Interactive, we used it. Proof Geist or Proof Group used it. When you looked, when you hooked up with Dave Graham about this and, and sort of compared notes, did you feel, did, were we kind of operating together? Were we, did we have the same ideas and how close was our implementations, our separate ones? Um, the implementations are different. I think the ideas are pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah the, and, and that's true with a lot of things with Proof Group and Geist Interactive was a, there was a lot of overlap in terms of the, of the concepts and what we're doing. Yeah. And there's just differences of implementation. So, you know, thinking yeah. about like the, the transaction model, mm -hmm. the way that Geist did it was different than the way that Proof did it. There was a lot of commonality and it's just like on the edges in terms of implementation details. So, okay. you know, it just shows that there's a lot of different ways to implement these concepts, but the core concept remains the same. So with the party model, I mean, I gave a DevCon presentation on this. I can't remember when it was, maybe when I say back in 04 or 05, um, 
it's a long time ago. I had started maybe 06, 07. I don't, I don't remember really. I really started looking at the party model in detail and how we can apply it to the FileMaker systems. And I, I remember Dave being at one of those things and, and he seemed to really have a lot of interest in the party model and to really get sort of the idea behind it. Like, why is the party model useful? From time to time, I know we've run into each other and and perhaps chatted about it a bit, but it's interesting to see that, you know, he ran off with it <laughs> and I ran off with it and then we came back and, you know, they're pretty close in terms of the ideas there. That's great. Okay, so this is this sounds beautifully it sounds beautiful conceptually. <laughs> sounds beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's it 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 makes sense to me. I'm finally understanding it and I remember working on a system with Wim DeCourt. He kind of pushed me in this idea because it was the same thing. It was a student information system. There were people who were students and teachers at the same time in the same system. And I was struggling with how do you model this? How do you put this together? I really don't want to enter Jeremy Brown twice in two different tables. Right. That's really the university context. You see that a lot because yeah, that's right. You have all of your graduate students are are also your teachers. Yeah. Um, at least for the boring courses. And so, <laughs> so yeah, so that this model really does work well with this. Um, but there are problems, hmm. um, especially with the, the level of implementation detail that we did at Proof Group. So we really pretty much went full abstraction there. And so we have a lot of tables that are part of the core system. And that's really to have this sort of data implementation fidelity. We wanted to make sure that the data was actually stored right. What we did to make that possible is we put an API front end in front of it so that you are interacting with the model via the API so we can make sure that nobody's really just writing to the, to the data fields directly um, yep. because then you have no idea what's going on there, especially if you've got somebody rogue who develops their own graph and they're like, I don't know why we need this table or that table. I'm just going to cut those out and stick this field in here and done because we don't want to lead to have that lead to any data inconsistency. But it gets to a problem with um, the way that the FileMaker relationships graph works and the way that FileMaker optimizes its own performance internally. Let me ask you one question before you get to that. If I were to needing the email the dean in the dean's module, mm-hmm. normally we put that field on the tape on the layout itself, right? Yes, yeah, and we and that's, and we can that's what you do that. did. Yes, right. we did okay. that. Yes. Okay, so that's where problems started but to arise in, in terms of. Editing that email, though, yep. instead of you clicking directly into that email field and changing it or, you know, having a blank email field there where you can add one, because we don't necessarily have all of the tables that need to be created to associate an email with a student. Mm-hmm. Um, what we would do is we had this idea of you'd have like these what we call core services. And one of those is a contact method editor. And that's just a little window that would pop up. And today I would do it as a card window, but we didn't have card windows back then. Um, It's a little window that would pop up that would allow you to enter the email address. And then it would take care of making sure that all of the correct tables were populated with all of the correct data so that it was stored, it was persisted in the database correctly. But then once it was done with that process, sure, that email address would be right there on the layout. So from the user's perspective, the difference is they wouldn't be editing data directly on the layout that they're looking at the data necessarily, yep. but they would have a consistent dialogue window that would pop up for editing that data. Because if they had to okay. edit an email address for a parent or they had to edit it for a an advisor, it's the same dialogue that pops up. So it's a familiar 
method of editing that data. It's just mm-hmm. not direct editing like a lot of FileMaker systems have. And uh, I, mean, I prefer that method to not not write on the layout because you can control the record. And it seems like with a party model implementation, you're having to control the record cycle a lot. You're having to distribute the data among other tables. Yes. So you can't just allow an edit directly on a, on a layout. Right. Okay. I mean, edits, some simple edits you could. It, it's really about like creation that becomes tricky because you have to make sure that all of the right records get created all at once. Well, and I, it seems like the stuff that's in that module itself that's unique to that module could be edited right on the yes. layout. Yes, yes. Stuff that belongs in core probably needs a better handling of the data, right? Yes. Okay. So you were you were talking about the problems. Uh, yeah. So so the there are a couple of problems, and one we already talked about, which is just whenever we wanted to create a new module or implement core somewhere, there's a lot of table occurrences to add to the graph. I, th- I think that last count for the basics of core to get like sort of what a lot of people expect to be the baseline is something like thirty table occurrences. If you want the full thing, it's about 78 table occurrences to have the complete core data model there. That's a lot to ask of anybody. I mean, it's a lot to ask of myself. And so I typically am the one to do it because I don't want to you know, put that burden on anybody else, certainly. So that, that's the first problem. It's, it's just a lot of work. This, so if, sorry, I'm going to yeah, interrupt sure. you there. <laughs> sorry. So if, if someone were to buy different modules, that would require different parts of core to be added to those modules. Is that right. correct? Yeah. Okay. Core, so, core is already part of those modules. So if they, if they bought a module, they're going to get core plus that module. All right. Keep on going. Sorry. So uh, the other so, problem. So the other problem was just the inaccuracy of doing that work. Uh-huh. You know, I strive for perfection, but I keep missing. And so you're replicating all of these relationships, you know, for 20, 30, 50 table occurrences, you're going to mess one up. You're going to mess two yeah. up. And you're not going to figure that out until the user is doing something. And then they're like, oh, every time that I put this address in, it deletes the mom's address. And they're like, well, that's weird. And then you realize that, oh, yeah, that's what's happening. You know, it's you've got the wrong relationship or something there is sending the wrong ID and the wrong records getting edited. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's like, oops. And then sometimes it's a really big mistake that, you know, requires a lot of going back and, you know, rolling back the tape and figuring out what went wrong and recreating that data. That's something that you try to minimize a lot, but then Mm -hmm. it's just adding a lot more development effort. So if you go down that path, you're going to spend a lot of your time just trying to prevent accidents from happening like that. Yeah, and not actually developing the things that the end user wants. It's like, oh, I want a new feature, and you're like, okay, it's going to take me an hour to do that new feature. It's going to take me twelve hours to make sure that I implement core correctly. You know, <laughs> that kind of a, you know, that's not what the client is signing up for. They don't care right. about core. They just want an application that solves a problem for them. The other thing that we ran into is, and I, I mentioned things like with the Dean's module, you know, trying to find the mom's email address. And that path is actually through nine separate table occurrences. Um, Just because of the way that relationships work and the way that the system is structured, that's a really long path to traverse. And let's say I want to find, you know, I just had a missed call from a phone number and I'm like, oh, whose phone number was that? You know, I know it was a parent who left me a message. I didn't catch their name, but I did get their phone number. So I do a search for the parent in the parent phone number field 
two hours later, FileMaker would return that result. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, just two hours later. All right. right. Yeah. And, and, and the user is calling us up. They're like, um, there seems to be a problem. So <laughs> I'm trying to do this search, and none of the other users can use the system right now. And it's just spinning on my computer. And we're like, well, that's crazy. And, and then you go and look, and you turn on top call stats and everything, and you, and you find out, like, oh, this search is taking a really, really, really long time. And you think, well, maybe there's some index corruption or, you know, you start to think, well, what could possibly be it? And the problem was actually that the path was too long because what FileMaker does is it tries to optimize your experience <laughs> when you're working with FileMaker. And, and part of that experience is a sense of performance, whether something is feels quick or if it feels slow. And one of the ways that it does that is it tries to cache portions of the relationships graph. So it knows already what joins it needs to make between the data so that when I do a search and that record is a related record, you know, maybe directly related one table away, or maybe it's two tables away, FileMaker has already cached that. And so that search is relatively quick. It's not as quick as if the data was right there in that table that you're searching on, but it's relatively quick. And the farther you get away from that data being directly in that table, the slower those searches end up mm. being. So if I'm one table away, maybe that search takes just you know a noticeable second. Two tables away, I'm like, oh, I can count one, two. I get three, I get four. And one of the things that I tested, and I tried to look up um, the testing numbers because I had tried to get those prepared in time, but I couldn't find them. But we had turned on the top call stats and done some of these tests with doing searches at different join graph depths. And about the time where you got to six, the performance is where it really fell off. And so you would do a search and it might be four tables away and it was slow. It wasn't as speedy as doing a search one table away. But once you got like six tables away, you were really going to wait. You're going to wait some time, you know, and maybe a few minutes or in the case of that example, you may, maybe you're going to wait a couple of hours because FileMaker hasn't optimized that that part of this of the join graph for doing yeah. a search on data. So it has to rebuild that. It's sort of like, oh, I got to do all of this one by one. That's a slow process. Um, uh-huh. So we're like, oh, well, that's bad <laughs> because we can't have find not work. Um, find has to work. And so there were two approaches that we were taking to this because for us, having the performance feel quick is a usability feature, you know, and, and we failed if our users are like, oh, the system feels slow. How far back did you notice this problem? And has it gotten better with recent versions of FileMaker? Sure. Um, you know, I noticed this a, a long time ago. I want to say, I, I don't know, years, probably back in FileMaker 9, which is when I first okay. started noticing this. It seems to have gotten better, actually. Um, okay. And certainly in FileMaker 19, I'm not seeing the performance drop off that I did in FileMaker 10 or FileMaker 9, um, but it's still there. And it's just a, it's just the nature of it. Like, this is true of SQL systems. It's true of pretty much any system that's using relationships. The more relationships you have, the more joins you have, the slower the performance is. I haven't been able to replicate like the catastrophic performance drop off, but it's still a pretty big drop off that's in there once you get out past the amount that's been cached. Any type of drop off like that. I mean even 
looking at the performance three tables out or four tables out, that's still not good. I mean, I was doing a simple test right before we started recording, and I looked at this file, and I put the data directly on the table. And those searches are lightning fast. I want to find, I've got 100,000 records. How many people are from California? Boom. You know, FileMaker returned that result instantaneously. I put that one table away. How many people are from California? Took half a second. You know, it was, it was perceptible. It was like, oh, I'm thinking about this. And then it was there. Then I put it two tables away. And you start to see that drop off. It's like, oh, I have to think about this for two seconds. It's three tables away. Oh, I got to think about this for four seconds. It's four tables away. I'm going to think about this for seven seconds now, <laughs> you know? And so each time it got farther and farther away, that performance, you know, it's, it's, it's still within the range of maybe acceptable for most people. But you could notice that, hey, I had it lightning fast when it was right in the table. And now I've got like seven seconds when it's like four hops away. Okay. And when I'm six hops away, it was like 23 seconds. And I'm like, okay. So there were a number of different ways that we tried. You know, once we looked at that and saw the performance implications of having these, these really robust and broad relationship graphs, started to think, well, how can we get that data closer to the layout, you know, to, to the object that the layout is built on so that we're not going six hops, we're not going nine hops, we're going one or two hops. And so that's where we start looking at things like key caching, like, what if I have this keys, you know, and, and, and also relationship path shortening when we were describing this, and it's kind of hard to visualize, but we have a party table related to a person table, related to a student table, related to an address join table, related to the address table. And one of the things that we can look at is like, well, I don't have to go from student to party to person to address join because address join has the party ID. And if I have the party ID and student, well, I could just cut out the middleman there and just go student, address, join, address. So that cuts my path from five down to three, which is, okay. you know, that's that will offer you a noticeable improvement. Um, but it doesn't fix everything. And so that's where we started looking at, well, how can we fix this? How can we change this so that we get that performance where if not all of the fields are in a single flat table, then as close to that as possible. And there's actually two different approaches that we've taken to this. One is an effort that called Lightspeed, and that's really using some of the bigger web systems use these types like solar or some of these systems which cache data and they are really focused on search performance. Huh. And so that's where you are searching across you know millions of records and you're getting your result in 0.03 seconds because those yeah. systems are really tuned for caching and searching. One of the things that they do is they give you that search experience like Google gives you where I have to search on this specific field for this specific data, but just search the entire object. Search the entire object for who's in California. And maybe you'll pick up some people who are named California, um, <laughs> but you know it's going to pick up like all of the people whose addresses are in California. So that was one way of addressing this, this performance thing. And then the other way is this thing that we started looking at some of the things that FileMaker gave us. And one of the, the things that I was really excited about was native JSON in FileMaker 16. Before that, we had been using the base elements plugin. There have been a number of custom functions out there on the web. You know, they have pluses and minuses, but really having that native in the product really opened up a lot of doors in terms of what we could do. Mm -hmm. And it allowed us to look at what if we're still storing core as the fully implemented data model that it is, but instead of putting all of that stuff on the relationship graph, 
we actually just put that object into like the student table. So rather than putting person and you know all of those tables, so I've got the person table, the party table, the role table, the relationship table, the address join table, the address table, instead of putting all of that stuff on the graph, I just package up all of that data and stick it as a JSON field into the student table. And now I can create calculation fields and say, oh, well, give me the phone number. And because that data is just sitting in a JSON object, I can just extract that and I can have the phone number in the student table. And so then when I do that search on phone number, it's lightning fast because it's all flat. You mentioned uh, something in the mind meld that you, you said a little bit here, but you started thinking about parties or whatever as objects, right? Yes. And that's you're storing, you're storing all of their data as an object in a single field. The, the object is constructed, I assume, via not a calculation, like an unstored calc through all of those paths, because that would, I think that would defeat the purpose of what you're trying to do here. <laughs> but it's constructed, and you're going to have to tell us how it's constructed. But that's the point, is that a, pers- a party is, const- is, is, is set up as an object, <clears throat> boom, and it, it may have multiple nested objects. It may have arrays in there or objects and objects, whatever. But it, it describes that the party right. uh, record completely. Right. The language choice is intentional because we're trying to separate logical concepts from physical implementation. Okay. So physical implementation, you talk about things like tables and fields. When we're t- looking at the logical implementation, we're looking at the logical construct, we're thinking about objects and attributes. And we use those terms specifically so that we can have that distinction. So when I say table and when I say field, you know that I'm talking about actually implementing something in the database. When I say object and attribute, I'm talking about this abstract concept. So when I talk about the Jeremy object, so Jeremy is an object of type person, and there's a number of attributes. Crazy is one of them. Maybe. I haven't run across that yet, but I'm (laughs) sure I'll figure that out at at pause. Um, But, you know, you have things like your height. You have things like your eye color. Those are attributes of Jeremy. You also have one or two phone numbers, one or two email addresses. I assume you have at least one home address, maybe a work address, which is also your home address. And all of those attributes, well, those attributes, we can think of an address as being its own object, which it is. But when it's part of Jeremy, it's just an attribute of Jeremy. So an attribute of Jeremy is his address. And so that object Jeremy is actually this kind of complex thing that's composed of some simple attributes, might be composed of some multi-valued attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, like if I said, what are your top three favorite foods? Well, that's three attributes there. And maybe I don't want to order them, and maybe I do, but that's a collection of attributes. And then you might have a complex attribute like your address, which is going to have mm-hmm. a city and a state and a street and a house number and... It's going to have all of those things as that address object, which is just an attribute of Jeremy. And so when I think about the Jeremy object, I'm thinking about all of those things. I don't know if it's the best way, but the most straightforward way that I looked at and decided on in terms of representing that is as a layout. Because one of the great things about FileMaker and the JSON functionality and the the ability in FileMaker 19 to do execute data API is I can transform a layout representation into a JSON representation. And so now okay. when I look at the Jeremy object, well, I go to that layout, which is probably the person table. 
it has a number of relationships to all of these things. And I get that as JSON. And now I have the Jeremy object in JSON notation using the execute FileMaker data API. That execute FileMaker data API is is a script step. It has yes. to be run through a script. Correct. So is it, are you creating that object on the fly when you need it, or are you actually storing it? Both. Okay. So whenever there's an update to the Jeremy address uh, object, so if I get an address change, Jeremy has come to his senses and moved away from Florida and come up to the best state, well, maybe Colorado's the best state, the second best state, which is my state of Massachusetts, Jeremy updates his address. So at that time, I'm, you know, again, core is storing the data still yep. in this really highly relational format. So I update the address in core, but the layout being dynamic, it sees that change. You know, so when I look at the layout that has the object definition for a person, I'm going to see that updated there. Okay. So I run a script to just pull a new copy of that, and then that's what gets stored. So anytime there's an update, it runs the script to get a copy, and then that copy is stored. And that becomes that becomes the latest version of me. Yes. And, and so again, this is another reason to control the edit of records because you need you need the object to update itself, right? Or to be updated, right? To be updated, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are different things. You know, one of the things is, you know, some systems have things like database triggers. You know, we have layout-based triggers, event yeah. triggers. Yeah. Some of them have database-based event triggers. If we ever got something like that, that would mean that a change to the database would automatically kick off my script. Um, yep. Right now, I have to feed it through a process, an editing process, to make sure that that script gets kicked off. Yep. Uh, and again, it's a service that's provided by Core anyway. So if I have the edit person dialog that comes up, then that just means that's a dialog that I don't have. That's an edit form. I don't yep. have to create in my module because core is already providing that. Okay. So it's, it's actually a win there because it's a lot less forms that I need to create in any module. Um, but we don't necessarily need it for that edit purpose any, or for that update purpose anymore. If we were to get something like a database trigger. Yeah. But right now we just kind of wrap all of that into the process. You pull up the form, you edit the data, you save the form then you do the update to store the object. Okay. You mentioned that the data becomes flat because basically yes. an object is a flat representation of that party. It's its relationship is built into the object structure, right? Right. But it's flat. So you can then use calculate you said you could use calculated fields to pull out specific parts of that object. Correct. Are those so you have a, a a calculated field that pulls out the address city, right? Yes. Okay. If, yeah. If that's if that's something that we think we need. If that's um, something you need. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, so, a scripted process could just grab whatever it needs right. from that object. Right. And what it really is about is what are we putting on the layout? How easy is it to put on the layout? And how fast is that to search? And also for some of our solutions, especially in education you know, they're constantly getting requests to export data. And before ah. that was actually a really tricky thing because yep. we had this really highly relational structure yeah. and the user says, I just need to export these six fields. And we're just yep. like, oh, you know, you're biting your nails because you know that those six fields all come from six different tables. <laughs> and yep. It's like, well, how do we explain how to do this? Well, we're just going to do this export for you, you know, because yeah. it would take much longer to explain how to do it than it would to just finish it for you. But 
this way, because the data is flat, they can just export it. It's yeah. like, oh, I want the student's name and I want their date of birth. I want their graduation year. I want mom and dad's names and phone numbers. Boom. Those are all fields in the student table that are all calculated, but they're stored calculations. They're index calculations. So searches on those are really fast. Exports, they have names that look reasonable. They're not abstract names like we're storing them in core. All of that is a benefit to the user. And, and again, most of these things that we're doing are really about achieving something for the user, achieving performance for the user, achieving ease of export for the user. And we have to really keep that focus because it's easy to get distracted and like, ooh, look at this cool thing I can do in FileMaker. Yeah. Um, I, and I'm prone to that a lot. Like, ooh, wow, I didn't even think that I could do this. <laughs> and then it's like, well, who's going to use this? Yeah. And looking around, it's like, um, me? <laughs> Is that not good enough? And it's, you know, me doesn't pay the bills, unfortunately. All right, so let me make sure I got this, this straight. Okay, so we've got all the data in their different in their many, 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 many tables, and then a record is created. Mm-hmm. It the the process of creating a record pushes pushes it into the object and spreads that data among the correct tables that it needs to go to. The user doesn't see that, I assume. Correct. The the user just presses a button, and maybe server does that work of spreading it, or some other thing yeah, does that. I mean- Typically yep. what happens, you know, when, when you look at the data lifecycle, yep. um, the data is coming in on a form if it's yep. entered directly or sometimes it's being harvested from other systems. Um, yep. You know, and now everything is interconnected. We, you know, it's no longer like FileMaker is the one place where the data is. Yep. You know, now I might have some of that data off somewhere else. Um, maybe it's in my accounting system. It has some of the data. You know, and, and so I've got QuickBooks. It's got my accounting data. And so now I need to use a product like LedgerLink to get that data from QuickBooks online. Or maybe I have some of my data elsewhere. I've got a district-wide system that I get all the student information from, or you know, wherever that data is, it's coming into the system. So it's coming from other systems or it's coming in off of a form that somebody's filled out. Yeah. And then we need to translate that data in whatever format it comes in into something where it can be stored in the relational database. And that's where we're looking at taking that form and actually saving it out to the tables and fields that we've that we've created. Okay, so then that happens, and then mm-hmm. an update gets asked for or, or gets gets processed. Right. And here's what happens, as I understand: they're using a form to fill out. So you're using a global, uh, you're using a form with fields with global storage in them, right? A global. Um, I- We'll just say a form. A form, okay. <laughs> because yeah, the implementation again, it's implementation detail, whether it's globally stored fields or or whatever. Got it. Okay, so we yeah. got that, and then that data gets packaged up as an object again. Mm-hmm. The new data, the edited data. I assume the process to open the edit record like grabs the object, puts every field and every piece of data into the right fields, and then the user can edit any of that that data. So they're not actually right. editing a a field in a in a table, a particular record. They're editing the ob- they're editing the distributed object or the right. spread out object, right? Yeah, and, and so in terms of the way that the data is actually stored in core, usually they're not editing the core data directly. Okay, or maybe they are. You know, because uh-huh. they can for some things. You know, okay. again, I try not to be dogmatic about it. Um, the key is that the process is followed. So, however, okay. that data in core gets updated. We then need to update those objects. Yep. Okay. And so whether we decide, oh, we're going to make the edit form global fields, or we're going to make the edit form 
well, we're just going to open up to the record and let them edit the fields there because it's a simple object that they're editing and no need to go through all of this, you know, creating a form and, and translating that form and all of that stuff. We can oh, just let them edit the record just as long as right. we have that process control where the data gets saved and then the object gets updated. I get dogmatic about these things and that's what I'm trying to do because here, or that's what, that's what is coming off because I feel like it's, it's good to be consistent, but you all right. who work on it, you have the consistency built in, you know, when you have to use global fields or, or when you have to edit the object or when you can just allow them to edit the, the, the table, the record directly. Right. I think one of the things they talked about um, was like different relationship graph models. That's one of the reasons that I didn't use Anchor Buoy when that first came out was because it was a very dogmatic way of doing it. It's like you do it this one way. And the first thing I wanted to do when I saw it was like, oh, this looks great. I just want to connect all of the anchors together. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't do that. And I was like, oh, well then, and if, you know, and as we're talking about this, you know, my relationship graphs are very complex. That means that for every anchor, I've got to replicate core. Yeah. So now I don't have core once on my graph. I've got core seven times on my graph. And I was like, Ugh. that's just not going to work. That doesn't mean that I never use like anchor boy concepts. You know, it's, I use what works, you know, because the end of the day is you, you got to ship something and you can't be dogmatic about what approach you're using here yep. and, and just beating at it when a much simpler approach would work. It's like, oh, if I just do it this way, that works for this particular instance. And as long as you're being conscientious about it, I'm deliberately using this technique for this particular thing. And just knowing that you're choosing that and not just sort of defaulting to something, you know, then you can have multiple approaches. And I think we do that in a lot of different places. And I just apply that to my development as well. I'm going to have to have a bunch of people from Proofgeist on to talk about that because I get dogmatic about things. I think it's my teacher background, just like Mm -hmm. having consistency. You all were teachers. I don't know how you escape this idea of, you know, being dogmatic and just doing it the right, the one way, <laughs> but uh, you're a lot well, more easy going about that than I am sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I taught in, in a number of different schools. I've taught in the college I've taught in um, private prep school and I've taught also in Montessori school and yep. they each have different approaches to things, you know? So the Montessori school I think was the one that most got me to look at teaching as not teacher delivered, but student focused. Mm-hmm. And you quickly learn that there are different students and they have different ways of, of learning things. And so mm-hmm. you're trying to teach algebra to a bunch of sixth graders and you're like, oh, well, this kid's not getting it this way. Let yep. me find a different yep. way to, to give it to this kid um, yep. that, that works for the way that they're asking for it. Sort of developing that flexibility. I think the same is true here. I try to develop flexibility. It's you funny. Know? I would say the opposite. That I mean, <laughs> students are one thing for sure. Flexibility. But you know, data is data. FileMaker is FileMaker. There's best practices to do things, you know? So that's where I, and when I was learning FileMaker, I tended to like lean on, oh yeah, never use calculated fields. Never do this. Never do that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've, I've lo- loosened my grip on that right. a little bit, but. And I, you know, I've heard all, I mean, I've been doing this for so long. There are people are like, oh, never use repeating fields. Yeah. I'm like, well, a repeating field is just an array. That's all it is. You know, it's an array. In fact, it's an array with a single index that looks across all of the array records. That's pretty useful. Now, would I store related data in the repeating field? Usually not. 
I say usually, you know, probably 99 times out of 100, I wouldn't use a repeating field for storing related data. But understanding that it's just an array really opens up like, oh, I don't have to think of this as, you know, the origin of repeating fields was before FileMaker was relational. And I can think of, oh, what, is re- what does a repeating field get me? It gets me an array in FileMaker. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. We've got an array in JSON. We, you don't hear anybody in the JavaScript world saying, oh, no, no, don't use arrays in arrays. JSON. Like, like they look at you like you're crazy. It's built on, J- JavaScript is basically arrays. It's exactly. built on arrays. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same thing with FileMaker. Forget <laughs> about like all of this dogmatic, like, oh, don't do this, don't do that. Like, what is it actually giving you? Right. And, and that's what I try to do. Um, well, we'll, well, we will have a separate conversation yeah. on that because I still need that every once in a while. But let's get back to this. So you described this, I think, if I'm correct, you described this as a RESTful service or a right. RESTful model. Can you clarify that for us? You know, in this sort of new realm of FileMaker development where things aren't just FileMaker anymore, we've got the web viewer, we've got JavaScript that we can do, we've got these add-on modules. One of the things I don't want to do is just reinvent things you know, that already exist. And so when looking at how do I create these APIs where I'm getting these JavaScript objects and I'm updating these JavaScript objects, what model do I use? And I said, well, why not just use a RESTful API? I mean, that's what the FileMaker data API is built on. That's a very common pattern. It's been around for a very long time. Um, I can't remember when it came out. It's like 2002, maybe, when it was first described. And it just made sense. Like if I'm going to implement an API for talking to core, because we're no longer writing directly to core tables and fields, we're now using the API to pass data objects back and forth. Why not just implement it as a RESTful API? Uh And that made a lot of sense to me. And whether we're doing that with a FileMaker script or doing that with an actual data API call, um, either way, it's using the same concepts of I'm going to do a post to this or I'm going to do a get from there. And, and so that's what you're doing. You're just, you're getting, you're using, and you showed us your scripting model. Can you describe that a little bit? You all, you have scripts called get person or get right. whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, so generally, um, you know, again, I try not to repeat myself. So I use an abstracted um, model for both my data and for my scripting. So I'll have a script like get person, and that will take an identifier for a person. And then that will call an abstract script that gets just any object. So the get person will say, oh, we're getting this type of object, which is on this layout. And then the abstract thing will take that and it will get that actual person record and return it back. And so that return back. And again, one of the other things I adopted was the FileMaker Data API response format. Um, which yeah. is to have a messages ah. array and then to have the object that's returned after that. You know, again, it was one of those things where like, do I define my own? Well, why not use one that's already there uh-huh. and using the one that's FileMaker? So anybody who has familiarity with using the data API, if they call a script from core, they're going to get back a similar result as they would from the data API. So are you including in that? Are you including the modification count and all that stuff? That's part um, of the... if, if it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, And again, so one of the things that we do is we do actually transform it because we don't want to think of this as tables and fields. This is really about objects and attributes. Okay. So we do transform that JSON object quite a bit. um, So it's not what FileMaker natively gives you. It goes through a transformation process. Some of the keys get renamed. Some of the 
attributes get moved around. So things like record ID, modification count, etc., all of those get shunted off into a, a metadata object because those aren't data about the object. That's metadata mm-hmm. about the object. Okay. So we do do some of that where things get moved off, some things get renamed. On the layout, you know, we can rename we can name portals, and those portal names will come through, so we can get the object name there where we're defining it on the layout. But we can't do the same with fields. If I have something on, you know, it's in the mother portal or the parents portal, but I want to actually rename some of those fields inside because they're all the same fields in core, and I don't want to just have, you know, phone number, phone number, phone number, phone number. You know, as I want to say, this is mother's phone number, this is work phone, or okay. whatever it might be. I do do that transformation where I can rename those things dynamically so that I get an object back that actually semantically makes sense to the user if they were to look at the JSON object. Okay. And then that makes the calculations easier too. So I can, yeah. when I create that calculation, I'm like, oh, what's the work phone? Well, it's the attribute called work phone. <laughs> uh, that, that's, making, that's making sense. So, you, so your, your scripts are getting, getting something, getting a person, you, you call a specific script and you're passing in, how, do, how, how does it know which, which person to get? Um, we're usually passing in an identifier. So if I'm in my student information module, I'm looking at a s- student record yep. typically, and I know what that student ID is. I might know what the party ID is. I might know what the person ID is. I, whatever ID I have on hand, I use that, and that gets passed to the script. Okay. And so I'll have different APIs that will handle that. So I can get a person by party ID, or I can get a person by person ID, whichever one you happen to have. All right, this this sounds doable. So, did this has this solved the that performance problem? Are people waiting minutes to see the email or anything oh, anymore? Oh, absolutely not. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, the big thing that this solved is that all of that performance of doing searches in FileMaker because that data is all in that table. Yep, those are just lightning fast now because it's an index field in that table. If you put it on the layout, it shows up green for the for the quick search for FileMaker. So any of those searches, uh, you know, if I want to look up the mother's phone number, well, that's just a field. If I want to look up the work phone or the work email, that's just a field as well. And so all of those searches are really fast. It does create a different problem though. Oh, okay. And I thought we were done. I thought, you know, you could go <laughs> home because I know, I know. I wish. It, it creates a different problem, which is how do I get updates to the other systems? One of the great things about Core when we did it the old way, where we just put it in each module, is that FileMaker handled all of the update notifications. So, and and you don't really think about what FileMaker is doing behind the scenes, but if you've got six people looking at a record and you make a change, it's going to take maybe a, a click or two, but I'm going to see that change on my screen as well if we're looking at the same record. And the reason is because FileMaker has taken that update that you did, it's committed it to the database, and then it sent out a notification to all of the clients that are also connected to that database and said, hey, by the way, this record got updated, so you might want to refresh that. Okay. And so then my client goes, oh, great. And I refresh my screen, and I see those modifications that you made. When we're doing this with this new model, so I've updated the object in core, but you're not actually looking at the core object directly. You're looking at a cache of the core object that got stored in your student's table. Or you're looking at the cache of that core object that got stored in your customer's table. Okay. And you're saying, well, now how do I get that update? And that's the problem because core doesn't know 
anything about your customer's table and doesn't know anything about the student's table. All it yeah. knows about is core, but it still has to get those updates out there. We looked at a number of different ways of doing things and settled on this um, pattern called PubSub. And the idea there is that you have, and, and this again, this is another old pattern that's been out there for a while, um, but you're now starting to see a number of, of systems talking about PubSub and implementing it. Amazon certainly has their PubSub service. There's the Redis PubSub service. All of these things are not new technologies, but they're sort of newly prominent technologies for us. And so we adopted this idea of, of PubSub as a pattern. And the idea is when Core updates an object, so I've made a change to Jeremy's record, Core will then publish like, oh, Jeremy's record has changed to the system. And okay. it'll put that in a channel and, and who knows how, what channel it's in. Um, that's, that's a whole exercise in itself is defining which channels things go in. But let's say it's just a channel for person updates. And what I can do is I can have all of my systems subscribe to that and say, whenever something is published in the person update channel, send me a notification. Your record is updated in, in core. Core publishes that change to the PubSub system. And then PubSub will go out and notify all of the different modules that have subscribed to that and say, hey, by the way, this Jeremy record has changed. This Jeremy. And my system might be like, I don't know who Jeremy is, and just throw that notification away because I don't care about Jeremy because, you know, I'm the financial system. But if I'm the student information system, I'm like, oh, yeah, Jeremy's a teacher here. Let me update his, the cache of his data wow. in my system. And that's a wow. very different model. And it's probably okay. something that we'll have to have a whole other podcast about is this idea of having this asynchronous decoupled data where you've got your data being updated through this asynchronous communication rather than relying on FileMaker's direct notification. We've, we've talked a lot and you've, you've given, you, you're, it's very clear about what this, what the problem was and what you were trying to solve and, and, how, and how you're solving it. And you mentioned PubSub. I, I agree we're going to have to get into that um, at a different time. Um, I think we're we're talking about it internally. You and and Todd have, have 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 kind of played with this idea, so I'm excited to hear from all of you about how this works. Um, but I, you know, I'm curious to to answer a question that I'm sure is on people's minds. You're you're describing a lot of work to do to that kind of goes around what FileMaker is doing itself. I mean. Maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm making this too easy, but it you know you're you're talking about having to cache data and and PubSub it. <laughs> you know you have to update it, you have to distribute it, you have or spread it out, you have to bind it back together. That's a lot of work. Is 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 that a lot of work worth it because of the problem that you encountered and that you're trying to that you wanted to solve? I think um, if you look at the whole path, it's almost like we've come full circle to where we started, where we have the data locally yeah. in each table. Yeah. You know, we started out with student had its own copy of first name, last name, and, and phone number, and teacher had its own copy of first name, last name, and phone number. And now we're all the way right back at that place where yeah. student has its own copy of first name, last name, and, and phone number. Um, the difference is that we've really separated out the reason that those things, those fields are there. Initially, 
those fields were in student and in teacher and in all of the other tables as the data store. That's how we persisted the data. Okay. And if we wanted to update the data somewhere, well, we were actually changing multiple persistences of that data. Where we've gotten to now is that those fields are there, but they're just cached. Yep. This this is really about caching. And the you know, we don't have a caching system in FileMaker. We don't have some separate module that we can say, oh, well, this is the FileMaker caching module. So we have to implement these things as fields in the table. If I could cache a different way, then I would do it a different way. But the problems that it solved actually are larger than just the one problem that we had with core performance. Okay. That was sort of the impetus for making the change. But then the reason that we continued down this road is like, oh, this is actually a big thing um, where we can actually get a lot of benefit from adopting some of these things. So one of the things I, I didn't talk about it much, but we have another module called the ORM module. And if you've worked in any other web system, you're familiar with an object relational mapper. And this is really because whether you're in JavaScript or Python or or Ruby, you're defining things as objects there as well. And then you have to yep. map that to a database. Yeah. And so we have this object concept and we have to map that to FileMaker tables. Now, I can do it two ways. I can have scripts that are specifically like, oh, I've got the Jeremy person object. I know which fields to write that to. And I'm going to you know, have... 47 script steps that writes all of the right fields to update that object. Or, and the way that I prefer to do it, is I can look at that as an abstract problem and say, well, what if I just have an abstract script that does that? That takes that object, has a table that tells me, well, when you see this attribute, that belongs in this table in this field. And I can automatically read from Jeremy's record and write to Jeremy's record and not actually have to have a script that's specific yeah. to that object. Um, and that's essentially what an ORM does. And creating one in FileMaker is questionable. Um, I don't know you know, what, what the effort gets us there, um, but potentially it means that whenever I need to update the data model, I don't have to go in and look through all of my scripts and figure out what's going to be affected. You know, if I decide to change the way that addresses are stored, the object stays the same but I can just modify the storage translation table and everything automatically gets updated there. Wonderful. Okay. It sounds like this is, it's just generally, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to think conceptually now of people as objects or sorry, data as objects. And obviously if I were doing a, uh, like a, you know, keeping track of podcast episodes, I don't need a whole object yeah, exactly model you know, for, for this, right? I just With, right when I started out in FileMaker, and I'm doing just like invoicing solutions for people yeah. who are. This doesn't apply to that. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is really comes out of the fact that that our education modules. This is a large system. Um, running schools and universities is a complex thing. It's a complex task. Ernest likes to call it a light enterprise system, and certainly with the larger universities, it's a, a large enterprise system. So that's where you need to actually have a more professionalized development approach than just, oh, I'm going to have a few fields and a few tables and I'm done. (laughs) So if if that's the system you're building, you know, you would be a fool to actually implement any of this stuff. But if you're building a large system where there's a lot of interconnected pieces that are talking to each other and data is constantly shuffling about, well, that's when you might look at an approach like this to make your life easier. 
I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a foolish to build something, build a smaller system. It's good practice for one, right? Well, you can certainly practice with it. I don't know that I would implement an object relational mapper if I'm just building an invoice system. Okay. Good point. (laughs) Um, Okay. Because, you know, that's just so much more effort and you don't really get any benefit. The client doesn't get any benefit. And really a lot of these techniques are about benefiting the developer for making their job easier. Yep. Um, another approach to making the job easier is to use something like generator, um, which attacks the problem in a, a slightly different way. And it says, well, I'm just going to build the script for you. I'm going to make it easy. Yeah. So instead of having to manually code a script that has 57 set fields in it, generator is just going to give you that. And it's yeah. brilliant. So that's another way of attacking that problem. You don't need generator to do that, though, if your table only has three fields. You know, you can use sure. generator, but, yep. but you know, it's, it's going to be just as fast to just go in there and write a script that sets three fields. Because my mind is never too far from JavaScript in our workspace, it feels like there could be something even more leveraging what JavaScript can do with its speed and its being able to collect data or to reformat data, organize it right. in a different way. And that's actually something that I'm, interested in looking in because right now all of that translation in the in the orm system that i've created is in filemaker uh-huh. and one idea i had was like well you know json is javascript so <laughs> it would make a lot of sense if i can offload this to javascript yeah that that transformation will be a lot faster right yeah. now it takes about a second or two to translate an object if i can get that down to lightning fast then i can look at scaling up these systems we have even projects here at Proofgeist that are completely JavaScript-based front-end and in FileMaker back-end. So all the right. data is stored in the correct model, and we're using Execute Data API, and, and, and we're spreading it into the, the JavaScript, whether it's a form or a table or whatever, you know, very nicely. So I, I, would, I would love to see a JavaScript form in, in core at some point. That would right. be super awesome because it's bringing in what 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 forms can do in javascript perfectly like all the validation right away and all that stuff right and you know and then passing it back to core in the format that that you've you've set up so it sounds like you just volunteered for something so great <laughs> sounds good to me i i like i do that i like work <laughs> yeah all right good well let's let's do that so um this is great corn i'm really glad that you were able to share these thoughts to us. I think that's important. I, I, I see people in the community every once in a while decrying the performance of hopping many, many tables. And you are just letting us know that, yep, it's a problem. In no words, have you blamed Claris or FileMaker, no. the platform for it? it? You mentioned, actually, this is what SQL databases do generally anyway, right? Right. Any, any relational database. Any relational database has this problem. I okay. mean, they're typically faster from the start, but okay. you start putting in complex joins in there and you'll see their slow down as well. Yeah. You just recognize that, hey, there's an issue and the way that we decided to structure the data logically calls for a different method of collecting it and presenting it and, and updating it. So right. very cool, man. This is great. I'm really glad to have you share this idea with us. And and we'll, like you said, you mentioned, we'll... We'll have you and Todd and Ernest come back and, and talk about uh, PubSub at some time and, and clarify that for us and help us understand how 
this, the many different modules of the system can get notified of the update. Um, that's intriguing to me. It's really, and again, this is not, <laughs> this is not in the FTS. This is not in the, you know, it's, <laughs> it's pushing FileMaker. I, I wouldn't say anymore. It's pushing FileMaker to do what it can do. It's pushing FileMaker to solve the problems that you're encountering. Right. And it's, yeah. it's using FileMaker to solve those problems. So it, it, it's is- looking at FileMaker as a generalized development tool. Yeah. Um, which has, you know, a number of strengths, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to look just to the FileMaker world to see, well, what development patterns can we yeah. adopt? We can also look outside and say, oh, well, this pattern is really cool over here in R. Is there something I can do with that? Or this pattern is really cool over here in, in Django Python. Can I implement something like that in FileMaker? That's great. That's cool. Well, thank you, Corin. This is great. Uh, we've been we've been going for quite a while. I I, I love hearing this. And we'll we'll have this episode out. I'll try to I'll try to write this what we talked about in words and and kind of get get it out <laughs> as a blog post as well, so people can read it and listen to you. Um, I I imagine this is one people are going to listen to many times. So I'm, I apologize then. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, um, can people reach out to you and ask questions? How do they? How would they oh, get a hold yeah. of you? How do you get a hold of me? That's a good question. Are, um, are you get a holdable? Am I get a holdable? I think I am. I mean, I generally am on Facebook mostly in terms yep, of I social media. Yeah. I, I, Twitter got a little bit too much, um, and. You know, I don't check my email very reliably. So <laughs> send me a direct message on Facebook is probably the best way. Or if Cornel- you have my phone number, you can text me. <laughs> Cornelius Walker, right? That's on right. Facebook. Uh, on Facebook, I think I'm Cornwalker, maybe. Are you? I thought, you're in the Facebook um, user groups, right? I'm, I'm in the Facebook user groups. I'm on Facebook somewhere. Well, we'll, uh, we'll get, get you back to talk more about this and any further improvements, let me know and we'll share those ideas. And yes, I'm I'm up for some putting some JavaScript functionality in there to process the data or work with forms or whatever. So awesome. No, great. Thanks All right, Jeremy. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the context podcast. Thanks to my guest and colleague Corin Walker for his wonderful insights into how he and the team are working to make proof EDU better for our customers. I've got a clearer idea now of the party model and performance cliffs in relational databases, and I now know which state is the absolute best. I'll take all these under advisement. We'll have Corn on again, hopefully many times, to share his deep explorations of the Claris FileMaker platform. If you're so inclined, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We have 25 ratings. Can we get more? Let's say 50? I would love more ratings. Let us know how we're doing and offer to share your voice and perspective by volunteering to be a guest. Email us at thecontextpodcast at proofgeist.com and we'll figure out a great topic. Talk to you next time.